Well, hello, friends and family. Uh, this is Pam Stack. I'm your host, and this is Authors on the Air. I want to thank you very much for tuning in tonight. We are proud to be part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. If you're listening to me live right now, would you please click the follow button so Blog Talk Radio knows we're doing our business. Uh, if you want to find out more about my show and all the shows on the network, please visit our website at www. Dot authorsontheair.com. You can find us on Facebook at Authors on the Air or at Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. You can find me on Facebook at 4PAMSTAC. That's the number 4PAMSTAC. Send us a tweet at Authors on the Air. Visit us on all the social media sites. We're everywhere. I want to send a special shout out to Robert Gregory Brown. Not only is he a fine author, but he's a very talented composer and musician. Thank you so much, Rob, for our theme music. A special shout out to our sponsors tonight, Didi Corbett, author of The Amaretto, uh, author J. Carson Black, um, in, author of Intelligent Crime Fiction, and James Hankins, author of Shady Cross, You've Got to Get It. Our underwriter for tonight's show is Discount Pets and Supplies. You can order organic, holistic, healthy food for your pets online, anywhere in the country, and get the best prices ever at Discount Pets and Supplies. Tell them you heard about it on Authors on the Air, and they'll even give you a little bit off. I want to tell you all about Sleuth Fest, but that's going to have to wait till the next show because tonight, tonight is a very, very, very special edition of Authors on the Air. I have um, loved this author since uh, her first book came out. I've been following her career and reading all of her books. She shaped how I looked at literature and women's fiction and detectives. Uh, she shaped what I decided I wanted to read as I grew older. Um, not only is she an internationally famous author, she's been awarded some of the highest honors in literature around the world. I am especially fond of the fact that she is an outspoken advocate on behalf of women, of the mentally ill. She has worked very hard to right social injustice and for that, I give her snaps as much as her books. It is my absolute honor and privilege to welcome to the radio Miss Sarah Paretsky, author of numerous, numerous novels. Miss Paretsky, I am so honored to have you here. Welcome to Authors on the Air, Sarah. Thank you so much, Pam. And please do remember to call me Sarah. I, I am a grandmother, that. it's true, but um, but Sarah will work for me. Okay. Congratulations. I'll have my first grandbaby at the end of April. I'm oh, that's excited. Wonderful. A little girl. <laughs> oh, my God, the doll clothes are for them are wonderful, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, amazing. Sarah, I I can't tell you how much shaped my reading future uh, when your VI stories first came out. Can you please tell me a little bit about your own reading youth? What were you just crazy about books when you were a kid? And what kind were you crazy about? I was a, a total bookworm as, as a child, and I especially loved the Laura Ingalls Wilder books. In fact, I have to confess that as we've, we're now on day 21 of Days Without the Temperature getting up to the freezing mark in Chicago where I live, so I reread The Long Winter over the weekend just to Think, well, they went through a long winter and they survived it, and we can make it through this winter too. Wow. Was it as rich and as um, impactful to you now as it was then? I think as a, as a child reading those books, you're, you're just totally gripped by the story and the people. Now there are nuances in it that I didn't think about as a child, and the the just the fact that they – stayed sane through tribulations that that really stressed a lot of people. One of the things that uh, in the Midwest that, that we think about when we think about women and pioneers in the Midwest is the, the number of people who, who really had mental breakdowns. And I know you're very involved in mental health issues, but sure. the loneliness and the isolation that women lived in was was terrible and terrifying and the fact that that the Ingalls family were able to kind of keep it all together and in the middle of 
of horrific events maintain a level of civility and sanity to me is a real model for how to face some of the stresses that life puts in all of our paths. Yeah. Well, you're not kidding. It's a different time. And, um, you know, it's, I, I tell you, I, I don't, I'm, I'm glad that things are the way they are. And maybe, yes, it was a simpler time, but it was a difficult time, as you say. Who else influenced um, what you read and how you ended up writing? Oh, my goodness. I was a huge lover of Louisa May Alcott. I'm such a tra- traditional the story classic. for childhood reading. I love the March sisters. I had four brothers and no sisters, and uh-huh. so I escaped into the lives of those girls together. And they were so real. They weren't like plaster saints. They were... They fought and they disagreed, but they loved each other, too, and supported each other. And, of course, every girl who imagines being a writer loves Joe March. Sure. Yes, I um, I think I've seen every incarnation of film that was ever made with them. So, um, And I've read the books, too, of course. I was more of an Agatha Christie girl when I was growing up. Did you read mm. Agatha as well? I did read Agatha, not as a child, when I was in my teens. I tried Nancy Drew. I confess that Nancy's life was too perfect. I liked heroines who had to suffer uh, before they succeeded. So I liked, I loved Jane Eyre, you know, because she goes through so much yes. torment before she gets to the other side of the of the mountain, so to speak. Nancy Drew, even even if she was picked up and incarcerated by the bad guys, it, it didn't phase her. She had every possible skill. She could tap dance her way out of trouble. She could. <laughs> she knew physics. She knew everything, and she. Her father gave her total freedom. It was like it was it was too fantastic a life for me to identify with. That's funny. Um, I, I want to talk first about your social justice passion um, because it appeals to the human being in me, and to as one who is an advocate for victims of violence, it appeals to me on such a gut level. Um, how did you start? your life as a champion of human beings? I feel like, in a way, that's a kind of a grand description for for me and what I do. I've never, I've never done the big things that, that need to be doing. But when I was a, I'm 67 now, and uh, so I was, I was in college during the height of the civil rights movement and the height of the Vietnam War and so on and so sure. forth. And uh, in 1966, there was a a call put out for college students to come to Chicago and and work in the civil rights movement uh, and to to try to help change some of the terrible injustices that were that existed and really in some ways still do exist in this in this amazing city. And I answered that that call. You know, I was at that age where I was 19. I just the amount of ardor one has and the desire to make a contribution. And and I came here and worked in an extremely well-run program. It was the summer that Martin Luther King was in Chicago trying to help the local civil rights leadership make changes in housing segregation and job segregation and. A lot of ugly things like black kids not being allowed on beaches along Lake Michigan. And, you know, this was the north, but it acted like the south. And so we worked in a day camp with kids 6 to 10 and just were very involved in the city, very involved in everything that went on around Dr. King that summer. And it it so transformed my life in every way. And opened my eyes to many things that I'd, I'd been blind to. And um, um, I think then when I graduated from university two years later, I came back to Chicago and, and worked here and made this my home. But but that summer was was really what changed me, I think. Do you have um, one or two particular issues that are hot button for you, Sarah? 
Well, I I'm very passionate about women's reproductive rights, and I I know that you have a connection to um, yes. Kathleen Turner, and Kathleen has been just a who played Vi Warshawski in the movie that Disney made 20 years ago. Kathleen has been a huge champion of of women's reproductive rights, and so she and I connected there. Uh, but that is my, my the hottest of my hot buttons. Uh, right now I'm president of the Mystery Writers of America, though, and another thing that I'm seriously concerned about, women's voices and the voices of racial minorities, particularly African-American writers who are are very marginalized in the publishing industry. So that is the issue that's really on my front burner right now an excellent issue and it's absolutely true i um i have asked to try to educate myself on finding you know authors that i can present african-american authors who don't normally have a um a chance to to be interviewed as debut novelists whether they're independently or self-published whether they're traditionally published is a difficult thing for me to do, and perhaps you're going to have to be my resource for that because I want to provide a platform for all writers. I'm especially fond of women who write in what are, were, were considered non-traditional women's genres like crime fiction, which mm. I think is ridiculous. But, you know, I think women can write every bit as good. It's been my experience that women write in... in science fiction and its connected genres probably better than most men, at least the women I see nowadays. So I while I enjoy all levels of good writing, I, I love to I'd love to promote more minorities as well. So so you'll be my um resource for that. Well we'll, we'll, we'll work share. on that together. There's an African American writer named Angela Henry who used to keep a blog for African American crime writers, but so many of them have been dropped by by New York, they're either having to self-publish or move into different arenas. It's just, it's really frustrating. And, um, I mean, I think we all, those of us who pay attention to these issues, we know that as soon as, as soon as an employer or a student or a university knows that someone is a female or someone is African-American, they're sort of mentally downgraded about 10 to 20 points for capability. And there have been a lot of really interesting and very depressing studies on how you put the same book into someone's hand with the author as a woman or as a man, the author with a name like James or a name like Damien that might sound more black than white, and if the person thinks they're reading a book by a woman as opposed to a man, they think it's less well-written. If they think it's written by a white man instead of a black woman, they think it's a lot more, a lot better written. And, you know, you, so you put the same text with all these right. different authors' sure. names on it. And so, you know, the fact that, that that's happening in New York and in, in the industry is depressing but not surprising. Yeah, it seems to be. I feel like we've lost traction. Uh, especially in the areas of reproductive rights, as you say, is your hot button. I I feel like we've lost ground, and that's troublesome to me because, um, like you, that was a hot button issue for me growing up. And um, while we're very close in age, um, it it was also very important to me and always has been. Um, It's kind of frustrating. Uh, However, I want to say that my niece is is in her – is at Stanford – and she's very, very, very well aware of the inequities that exist between men and women. And as a matter of fact, is making that a focus not only of her undergraduate but her postgraduate degrees. So I'm wow. Well, oh, good for yeah. her. Yeah, yeah. She's she's. This is this is a a girl who, from a very early age, preteen, was very aware of what it was like to be a feminist and has been screaming it loudly so yeah she's one for the books i'll tell you as is my nephew a true feminist as well so i'm really proud of them as you can well imagine yeah now you've been you've been given many awards 
not the least of which was Woman of the Year by Ms. Magazine. That was you were pretty all, revealing. That must be, um, because that stands for who you are, not what you do for your living. That talks really to you as the individual, the human being. So congratulations on that. I know you also contribute to the New York Times and the Guardian newspapers. I'm particularly fond of the Guardian because I think that they talk about social justice quite a bit. But it, Yeah, and in a lot of ways they'll cover U.S. news that we don't want to look at. They just did yes. a really... The Chicago thing, right? Yeah, yeah, that was, that was pretty overwhelming. And really the fact that it hadn't been discussed by the Chicago newspapers was... was Shameful. Had you but, been aware of this as a resident of no, Chicago? No, I knew there had been a really ugly torture ring that existed in one of the police um, area police detective um, headquarters here, and that was finally shut down. And although none of the perpetrators was ever uh, prosecuted successfully. Uh, one of one of the guys is serving a little time in a federal prison for lying under oath, but none of them none of the people who were chaining suspects to radiators and and attaching electrodes to their genitals and doing all these things that are just disgusting things yeah. none of them was ever prosecuted or served time for those things when when that was finally recognized and shut down, I thought we were. I thought we were moving to a more less brutal place, but instead it's just gone underground and turned into a kind of Abu Ghraib sort of mm-hmm. sort of holding place on the west side of the city. So that I had no idea that was going on and very frustrating, isn't it, to see it in your backyard. You hope that it, you know you want your city to stand out and shine and be proud of it, but it's really hard under those circumstances. I'm a Miami girl originally, so you know I I I can't disparage Chicago for anything whatsoever. <laughs> We've traded off being the murder capital of the world a couple times, so I I, I so totally how understand. accurate is Carl Hyacinth's depiction of South Florida? Oh my God, Carl and Dave Barry and all of those writers. It's absolutely true. You do not have to have an imagination to be a fiction writer from South Florida. All you have to do is read a newspaper. <laughs> and and um and you know <laughs> it doesn't take much, Sarah. There are some kooky things that go on. So um I'm I'm proud of our wackiness and our citizens who are able to kinda, you know, suck it up and survive. It's frustrating that we've you've had to had to grow a thick skin from it, uh, and you know, kind of shrug it off and say eh, it's Miami. You know, it's a shame that you have to do that. But there are so many charming things, just as there are about Chicago, which is a wonderful, vibrant town. Miami is too. It's a great center for the arts. There are wonderful people there, and I love it dearly. Uh, so, and I go back as often as I can. I want to talk about you though. What what I think about it isn't important. It's what you think about and. Um, you you are the one who created Sisters in Crime, which is an international organization supporting women crime writers. I don't know of anyone who doesn't want to be part of Sisters in Crime. I, I see the best writers there. Um, the best books come from there. The most wonderful posts, the most collegial um, meetings and, and support groups. It's just terrific. Congratulations on that. That that's one for the record books. Well, it's sort of strange to look at it. It's such a vibrant organization, as you say, and so many women now and and men too who are part of it work really hard, have turned it into this amazing thing that um, we started just on. There were twenty six of us, I think, in a in a meeting room at at uh, the BoucherCon, the big crime conference in Baltimore in 1986. And I, I'd i been hearing a lot of, of complaints from women on just being sidelined, not getting review attention, not getting uh, not getting respect at conferences. And, and finally, I, I believed in the old Flo Kennedy saying, don't agonize, organize. And so I... 
I sent out letters to all the women that I knew. This is pre-internet, pre-email, so you did it all by snail mail uh-huh. to see if there just was enough energy to to organize and try to combat it. And and there we were in Baltimore, the 26 of us, and started from there. And and uh, gosh, thanks to I mean people like Sue Dunlap, Linda Grant, uh, Sharon McCrum, Carolyn Hart. They they just did such hard work uh, doing things like creating books in print so that, that books by women came to the attention of libraries and booksellers who who publishers weren't weren't paying attention to us and Sure. Uh they just everybody worked really hard and now the thing that we have five or six thousand members around the world and they're all they're all doing these very intense and creative things in their local chapters. It's it's pretty staggering to think that 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 I planted that seed and this is the tree that it grew into. It's quite the legacy. So, um, it's it's quite the legacy. Now, uh, when we talk about your books, you're no such in that department when it comes to awards either: the Cartier Diamond Dagger for Lifetime Achievement, the Gold Dagger from British Crime Writers, and on and on and on. You've been you've received your honorary degree of Doctors of Letters from several different universities. Uh, you're you're quite the busy lady, and 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 you know very well and very deservedly so honored for all the work and the the books that you've you've done. Congratulations on that. Well, Is there anyone? Is there any one thing that stands out in your mind as kind of being a highlight that you think, I'm going to hang on to that one? Oh, my goodness. Well, the Cartier Diamond Dagger, I mean, that is, that, that's extremely thrilling. And the British do things in, with so much style. It it's was, so much panache, don't they? Right. <laughs> it was just it was a wonderful evening. They did it at the British Museum and uh, uh the head of of the Cartier um jewelry company was was there and he was he was kind of like um oh gosh, I can't think of the, the actor's name. He's in Gigi the, the oh, golly, Maurice sorry. Chevalier. Yeah, Chevalier. It was, yeah. it was almost uh-huh. like he was channeling Chevalier with his with his elaborate uh, bowing over my hand and presenting me with a dagger oh. and so on and so forth. How and exciting. then um, there was an event. You if you you get a tiny pin, like a lapel pin, that has uh-huh. a real ruby, a real diamond, and a real sapphire in it. I mean, they're chips, but they're real. Mm-hmm. But if you're uh if you're a diamond dagger holder, there's a big dagger uh with big ruby diamond and, and sapphire in it that's in the vault at Cartier's in Bond Street. And if you're holding an event and you're a diamond dagger award winner, you can request that the dagger be the centerpiece at at the event that you're doing. So uh there's a British crime writer Marjorie Allingham, who's she's been dead quite a few years, but for the centenary of her birth, I um, and I I love her work, I still do. Uh, for the centenary of her birth, we were having a, a very nice party in the house on Audley Street that uh, that was Dorothy Sayers' model for the the home that Peter Whimsey and and Harriet Vane lived in in London, and. I requested the dagger, and they and they brought it over. They brought it over with a guard who uh, uh, looked after it. And we were, I would say that at that time I was about 60, and I was by far the youngest person in the room. <laughs> the guard took his duties extremely seriously. We tried to offer him sandwiches or a glass of water or lemonade, and uh, no, he you know he knew that we might slip something into the comestibles, and so he he refused all food and drink and kept his eye firmly fixed on the dagger. How funny is that? It's very James Bondish, isn't it? Yeah, so it, it was quite lovely. So I guess the diamond dagger really is is the high point. But but just to brag a little, my my alma mater, the University of Kansas, is giving me an honorary degree at their May commencement, and they've asked me to be the commencement speaker. 
How and lovely. I just I really feel pretty thrilled about that. Well, congratulations and well deserved, I have to say. Let's talk about I don't about know if it's well deserved, but I never turn yes, them down. No, absolutely you can't. Those are really important things. When degrees want to give you awards, you you uh, you know, universities want to give you awards and colleges, you want to take them. So, good for you. I think that's marvelous. Um, let's talk about VI Warshawski because um first of all, there's always a big discussion about how to correctly pronounce her name. Well, you now, said it the way I would say it. Warshawski because uh, of the the Slavic background, we learn that our W's are V's and and except for when we're talking vodka, which of course then it becomes the V becomes the W. How was your intention to have her the name pronounced? Well, it's a, she's American, and so it's an Americanized pronunciation. I say Warshawski. I don't say Warshawska, which is what it would be if she was really sure. Polish. And um, But, you know, close enough, close enough. Like my name, Peretsky, gosh, once, well, it was, it was a sort of a frightening event with my husband had been badly injured, but I was flying home and the plane landed in, in Chicago and they said, well, passenger Petarski contacted oh, no. the gate agent. And I thought, Petarski, close enough. Enough. <laughs> My father changed his last name before I was born. I'm the first of the of the children. Uh, his the, his name in uh, Polish was Stachelik, S T A C H E L E K. And I guess when he was working, they could never pronounce. They called him Stachelak, and uh. so finally they called him Stack. And he went and legally had his name changed. Oh, but I my cousin. See. My cousins are always Stackalek, so um, we were. I was never a Stackalek, but but I can understand the urge to twist it around. Um, those those names coming from those Baltic countries, they are kind of odd, anyway. So, um, and I think a lot of people when they when their my grandparents came over, who knows what the real spelling of their name was? I just, right, I've looked, right. I've looked no, at I've looked at ship's logs where they signed, and, and of course their writing was so different then. So who knows? But and also, talk. of course, the immigration officers—they wrote down what they felt like and, and right, what um, they thought it sounded like. So you know, who knows? Or even what it, you know, they were bored and they just wrote something down. Exactly. It's interesting. How how did Vi Warshawski come into being? Well, it was a it was a Dark and stormy night. There you I go. had wanted for a long time, or I had had a fantasy for a long time, uh, that I wanted to create a woman detective who who turned the tables on all the stereotypical images of women in noir fiction. I wanted a woman who uh, who was a problem solver and who had a sex life that didn't make her a wicked person and all these things and i just i i was working at that time in the corporate world and really literally one very dreary november day looking down at grant park i was working for a, for a guy at cna insurance in chicago who was really just a piece of work and my lips were saying gosh, Fred, heck of an idea, and the balloon over my head was saying something like, you unprintable, unspeakable son of a thousand camels or whatever the curse is. And really in that moment, VI came to me and I thought, my detective is like me and my friends. She's doing a job that didn't exist for women when we were growing up, when we were in high school. But she says what's in the balloon over her head because she doesn't care if she's fired or she doesn't wasn't brought up in Kansas to be a nice girl, always making sure everybody around her is happy and well taken care of. Right, right. And um, and so I went home and started writing about her. Had and you I wanted I didn't have her home? name at first. Um, Chicago is a very. I grew up in a tiny town in Kansas. And people did not, I mean, certainly there was a racist undercurrent 
that I only became aware of later. But really, people were not hyphenated Americans. They were just Americans. And it was such sure. a shock to come to Chicago and Polish and Irish, and people cared more about what the what country their ancestors had come from in a way sure. that was how they formed their identities here. So I thought, gosh, you know, I can't write convincingly with an African-American voice or a Latino voice or even really Irish, which was still the sort of dominant ethnic group here. Uh, but I thought, okay, one of my grandfathers came from Poland, Warsaw. That's Polish. Warszawski, she's from Warsaw. Um and so that's how I named her. Interesting. Had you always wanted to be a writer? Was was it a, a profession delayed so that you could go into a money-making venture? <laughs> <laughs> I always wrote. I don't think, I didn't imagine writing professionally. Writing was something very organic in my life. Um, I'm just finishing rewrites on a new book and I'm dedicating it to my older brother Jeremy who taught me to read and write and we used to write stories together we used to write plays and read together and I think I just grew up with him just reading and writing constantly and it wasn't really until I was in my 30s that I began thinking oh these stories that I've been writing my whole life they're things that other people might like to read how interesting was um for vi series was that were those your first published books yes the the uh i wrote the first one to create the character and also to prove to myself that i could write a book i just i took a long time uh stuart kaminsky who sadly died about 4 yes. years ago now you might have known him since he spent the last years of his life in Saratoga. Is it Saratoga or Sarasota? Sarasota. Uh, Sarasota. I get confused. <laughs> okay. okay. Which is Toga's in New York. In New York. In yeah, Sarasota's in Florida. Yes. <laughs> so he used to teach at Northwestern University in Chicago and um, taught a course on writing detective fiction for publication and just was incredibly helpful to uh, uh, I was working full time during the day and took this as a night school class and um now I can't remember what the question was I'm giving you a different answer than what your question No no was. I, is it your first published work Yeah so so um yeah I was trying to prove that I could write a novel and Stu was incredibly helpful to me and then I wasn't planning on a on a series but the um, I didn't. You know, I was so bone ignorant about the book world and the publishing world. I was a huge reader of, of sure. especially of mysteries and thrillers. But uh, I, d- I didn't realize that it was publishers who said, "Yeah, we want a series. and We want more books about this character." And so that was kind of how I just stumbled into it. How was it when you got? How, did it take long for you to get published? Was it a it, difficult thing for them to say? Oh, you're writing crime fiction. I, it you was. Know, I, I don't was. even know if that was a genre then. I mean, I guess we just called it mysteries. Everything was a mystery at that time. We probably didn't call it crime fiction. So, um, what was it like your entree into traditional publishing at a time when women crime fiction writers were just considered not worthy, um, essentially, almost. Re- Almost ridiculed. <laughs> well, I, I was lucky and unlucky. I was lucky to start out when I did because that was before the big push to conglomerates in publishing. So there were 40 mm. or 50 independent publishers, and and they were truly independent. They weren't all subsidiaries of Disney Impressive. or sure. Sony or Bertelsmann. Right. And so there were a lot of different places to go to. But it took a year, and I really didn't think there was a single publisher left in New York who hadn't turned me down uh, when the dial press, which no longer exists, um, suddenly made me an offer. And the big handicap, there were two big, well, really three, 
New York is not fond of private eyes. New York is not, or in those days, did not believe in independent women heroes. Uh, and finally, frankly, it was the Chicago setting. I got a rejection letter. I can't remember the the publisher, but the editor said that a book set in Chicago had regional interest only and that there were not enough people who read in the Midwest to make it profitable to publish a book set here. Oh, my and Lord. I know, I know. Oh, my it's Lord. It's really grim living in flyover country, I tell you, Pam. I just, you know, did you have our houses at the same time? I, you know, it makes me feel like you had no, to battle the No, In those days, I don't know what you do now, but in those days you did it one at a time. You waited three weeks there for that go. rejection letter, and then you sent it to the next one and ticked them off. Crazy. It's crazy. You know, I... I well, you know, and those are the times. That's the way it is. I, I guess it's a lot has changed. Um, there are a lot more. There are obviously some fantastic crime fiction writers, um, and and a, and half of them are women, if not more. Uh, but it it isn't any easier, I don't think, getting into a traditional. Oh, I think it's a lot all. harder now because yeah. there are so many fewer publishers. And sure. it's true that you what can it, always self-publish, yeah. and the internet is sure. there. But as I know your friend Libby will tell you, self-publishing, that is a 24-7 job. If you're going to try to make any money at it, sure. there are people like Fifty Shades of Grey who get who get a huge break. But for most self-published people, getting distributed, getting attention paid, it's just exhausting. And now, Sarah, isn't it exhausting though if you're not in a top? You are what I consider a top ten author. You know, you're the top shelf. You still will have books uh, come out as your first first printing will come out as a hardcover. Um, most people in the mid list do not have hardcovers come out, but but also most people who sign with the top five, one of their imprints. They also have to do their own marketing and do all that other well, stuff, Well, I have too. to do a lot of that. I mean, I'm not a list leader, yeah. which is what they want, meaning the top ten spots in the New York Times bestseller list. Right. So you tend not to get the kind of marketing attention. I know that I'm much more fortunate than many other writers, and I'm not going to whine about, about my life, but... Uh, to have successful bookstore events or anything like that, I have to do a lot of my own publicity, and so it's, I'm sure you do. And with the advent of, of fewer and fewer brick and mortar shops and smaller indie brick and mortar stores, it makes it even more difficult. And it makes it more difficult to get people into those brick and mortar stores when everything is digital nowadays, isn't it? It is, and yet I think that people still crave. Books, whether they're reading them on their devices or or reading them, um, reading them in print. And one of the things that that cheers me up is that the kids I know who are in their twenties, the ones who've grown up really in the online universe, they still love print books. They still, I mean, they'll read them on their Kindles or their iPads or whatever. But sure, but they love print, and um, that's very hard. Absolutely. I think we lost a generation to video games and and all that. You know, and those things became the ultimate babysitter. But then maybe maybe with um, uh, Harry Potter, we brought back the next generation. I think and got them reading again. I know a lot of younger people who read. I have a lot of friends who don't. I have a brother who said to me, "I don't think I've ever read a book just for no! pleasure." It scares me when I hear that. I, on the other hand, you know, I'm the person who doesn't have a TV. I'm the one who reads 400 books a year. I love but Writers are my celebrities. So, uh, And I've gotten more and more as I've gotten older. I've enjoyed it more and more. And I quite honestly don't care where my book comes from, where my – I don't care what device it's on. I don't care how what the format is as long as the content is good. So um, I want to take a moment right now to remind everybody – listening to the magnificent Sarah Paretsky. She has generously given of her time tonight to tell me what's happening in her life. If you want to call in and say hello, now is your chance. 347-633-9609. 
That's 347-633-9609. I want to remind everyone that this is a copyrighted trademark podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, LLC. I always try to say that in one breath, and I never can. (laughs) I I was impressed. (laughs) Thank you. Uh, I'm Pam Stack. This is Authors on the Air, and I am chatting with the delightful Sarah Paretsky. We have our first caller, so let's see who's calling in. Let's see. Hi, area code 631. You are now on the air live with Sarah. Hello. Uh, This is Bob Blackman calling. Hi, Bob. You're speaking to Sarah Paretsky. This is uh, Robert Blackman wrote a book based completely on Twitter. Tweets from Twitter. You did. I I wanted to say, uh, I think I, I, don't hold me to it, but I think I've read every book you've written. You are one of my inspirations, and I, I just wanted to say hello. And and uh, as a fellow mystery writer, I wanted to ask a question about uh, your your um, writing realistically about bodily injury. Uh, it's so often I found in, in mysteries that detectives get hit on the head or shot or otherwise injured, and they sort of brush it off and walk away. And you've made it a point in your books, I think, to you know if if a VI gets hit in the head. It's a big deal, and uh, you don't brush that off. And I wonder what, how you made that choice to to be realistic in that way. I, I think that that. Thank you very much, Bob. But uh, I think that came out of reading Raymond Chandler, because <laughs> Marlowe keeps getting hit on the head, and he comes to he drinks a pint of rye that he always keeps in his glove compartment and goes about his business. And I thought, no, no, don't be drinking whiskey on top of that concussion, and and. And also, it's, some of it is just how I imagine things. So when I'm writing, I'm really in the body with my characters, whether it's VI or or another character. And so I'm I'm sort of feeling feeling it and visualizing it as it's happening. And so I know how long it takes me to recover when I get injured, which, thank God, has never been in a physical fight, but... Um, and VI is much fitter than I am, so the recovery is faster than mine. But it, but it still, it it still takes a toll on you. I actually right. consulted I, I a neurologist. Um, I was I was starting to worry whether she was getting too many blows to the head and whether she was going to be like poor Muhammad Ali and have early onset Parkinson's. Um, Thing, <laughs> you know, like the injuries the football players get, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting bumped so, in so the I, head I just, so much. I just, um, I really appreciate that the realism that you bring to the story, even though sometimes the stories can be a little fantastical. But that storytelling, I just, I just like the the naturalistic side of it. I thank you. I'm very, I'm very. Thank you. That means a lot to me. Thank you so much for calling. Thank Bob, you. when is your next book coming out? Maybe this summer. I've been tweeting uh, the sequel for the last two years, and I'm just deciding whether it's time to bring it out in book form or not. Well, okay, well, you know who to well, call. Well, congratulations on that. That Now, that is an art form to do a, tell an entire novel in tweet. There's a very interesting interview that, that Bob allowed me to do, and um, a very interesting story, I have to say. So, um, Bob, you'll call me and let me know when you're ready to come back on, right? Absolutely. All right, my friend. Thank you so much for Thank calling you. in. You're absolutely okay. welcome. Right. Yeah, it's true. You know, I, I I have to stop and say that I I forget that your books are very noir for crime crime fiction. And I like that, and I think that's what appeals so much. I, like Bob, I've read all your books, as I've said to you, Sarah. And uh, they shaped what my reading list for the future is going to be. But... But I do like that noirish uh, feel of them. It's not something I read every day, nor do I find a lot of. So I I like it. I I and maybe part of that is because I can recall Kathleen Turner's voice as Vi, and that husky, sexy yeah, that, voice. Yeah, that's sort of yeah. She has a great it, voice. It really yeah conjures up all those you know. The images of the broad in in black, you know, and and she just is uh, the Lauren Bacall of our time, I think. Uh, you know, she, yeah. So 
it's yeah, a very yeah, she smart does image. exactly have that Lauren Bacall yeah. kind of voice. Yeah, she really does. She and so interesting. Um so you never thought you were going to do a serious character. You here you are you were happy to get your book out. It was wildly successful. Everybody No, it wasn't. It, right? I, my success came very slowly. <laughs> <laughs> my first book sold 3500 copies, which you know that which is another reason that I was lucky to start when I did. Today if you, your first book sells 3500 copies, you are such a loser that they they send you away. They don't care what you do next but in in those days back in the dark ages when i started out 3500 was a respectable sale and dial asked for a second book so but it grew slowly i wasn't a national bestseller till my fifth book uh, have you ever had the urge to write in another genre i've done two standalone novels and um uh I've never had and they're not and they're not crime novels. I've never had the urge to write in another genre, but and actually for crime fiction, I've never really had the urge to create a different character. I thought about it and I wrote short stories about a couple of of characters who non-VI characters, investigators. Right. Um one was a a forensic engineer and one was a, a Chicago cop, and those short stories were published in in some anthologies. But sure, uh, but somehow those characters just didn't come to life for me the way Vi did, and so she continues to be the person that whose voice that I want to I want to tell crime stories in. How many Vi books are there? I'm going to publish the 17th in the series in July. Um, uh, she still has many stories to tell, doesn't she? I hope so. I hope those stories keep coming to me. I think she does. I think she has lots to tell. Um, Sarah, I'm sure when you're out and about, a lot of aspiring writers to you and ask for advice. It's a, it's a difficult time. It's a good time. I'm, you know, no time is the best time to be a writer. You just sit down and you have to write. But what do you tell them in the way of encouragement? Well, I tell them that you write from the heart. You don't write to the market, however seductive the market looks, because that's if you're not writing something that you care about, your prose isn't going to come to life for a reader. And that I I don't think I don't think success is inevitable, but I also think that if you really care about your craft, that you will find your readers. Does and I believe passionately in in the written word, in the word that. It's the word made visible, and the things that we write down today, that they will outlast us. They will speak to yes. other people. You don't know when your words will come to life for a complete stranger, and um, um, so if so, care about the word. Care about the word on the page, and that word will find a reader. Stays, it stays. It it doesn't get left behind. You mentioned that Fifty Shades horror. Um, <laughs> it, it may go down in history uh, because of the way that people have misunderstood what it's about or how it came about. I don't know that it's gonna last like um, a BI book is going to last. I I think that I have my serious doubts about that. So. Um, you know, I I think you're right. Write something that's going to last through the ages, if nothing else, because someone will find you. And you're you're also right that you can about the different ways you can publish. There are different ways to get the word out there. And yes, you have to work hard at it. But you know, that's your product, and you have to sell it. So it's hard. I think this is just a very tough time in all of the arts with the issue of of the internet making piracy and theft so totally easy for music and, and yes. 
books and film and so on that it's just hard for everyone trying to make a living in the arts and um so the other thing I'd like to say is pay for the product because someone has worked hard to yeah, provide that absolutely. product for you. Yeah. Don't steal it. <laughs> yeah, on the um there are a lot of places there are black market sites where books are being published. If you, you know, don't don't buy books without covers, don't buy look inside and make sure no pages are missing in books wherever you go. Go to libraries and and buy and rent you know look at books in libraries if you can't afford to buy one I know books are expensive um leave reviews well, libraries are often. still the biggest buyer of books, of books. for midlist Absolutely. writers they account for 35% of the total sure. sales well, of all books are... so I say go to that public library get yeah, that book I... out of the public library I'm a big library girl myself I have I have library cards in two counties, so you know, on the east coast of Florida and on the west coast, and I'm very happy to. I'm very coastal reader. I am a bi-coastal reader, and I'm so excited to say that that my county has the Southwest Reading Festival coming up on March 21st, where they bring down very well-known authors and open up the doors for free to anyone who loves books. And some very well-known names are going to be as well as debut novelists. It's a great time to get in and meet those authors and hear their stories and read their books. And by all means, leave a review no matter what. That's that's your acknowledgement that you appreciate what you read on the page. And, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, tell the author in a private email you can always go to a website. Don't, you know, if the book's not your thing, it's not your thing. That's okay. You can say also, that. So if too. you don't like the book, can you please say it in a polite in way? A kind way. Of, uh, yeah. I've gotten emails that have made my hair stand up on end. Oh, I know. There's no reason to be a troll. You can you can say things politely. You wouldn't. I I would imagine though, you know, Sarah, those are people who yell at a waitress when the cook. Prepares a bad meal. So, Probably so. Um, you I'd know, also like to know, I would like some sociology department to do a study on why people cannot spell, why they lose all spelling and grammar when they're writing hate mail. Well, when see, that should tell you something. Their <laughs> brain is engaged. It's all about the emotion. That's for sure. Um, tell me what's next for you. What's on your agenda Sarah, I know that you have a new book coming out, but you're also starting to venture out under, from under the snow, and you're going to be doing some appearances. I know you'll be in New York coming up in May. Um, what's happening up there? Um, so the Edgar's the awards banquet for the uh, Edgar Allan Poe Awards from the Mystery Writers, that banquet yep. is on April 29th, 28th, 29th. And I'll be there as the president of the Mystery Writers. And then I'm going down to to uh, Bethesda for uh, Malice Domestic, the festival that was really yeah. started by the late and much lamented Barbara Mertz, Elizabeth Peters. And, uh, and they're doing me the great honor of making me the guest of honor. So that will be a very fun two days oh. there. In July, I'll be with Val McDermott in her home turf in Yorkshire in England at the Harrogate Festival. And it's held at the hotel in Harrogate where Agatha Christie spent those missing 10 days in the 1920s when she disappeared for 10 days and reappeared. And nobody ever knew if she really had a breakdown or if it was a publicity stunt that's still debated today, but... This conference, if you're in England in July, I will be there July 16th, Val McDermott and I, in conversation, in the hotel where Agatha Christie resurfaced after her mystical 10-day disappearance. I would would to be at something like that. It won't happen this year, but perhaps another time when you're going, I will make a a choice. Do you go to BoucherCon still? I do. I go almost every year. I love that conference. It's just such a great place to connect with old friends, meet new writers, new readers. It's going to be in Raleigh this year. So... um, Yes, in October. And 
I'm, I'm trying hard to make arrangements to go up there. I've not been to a BoucherCon. I usually go to a Thriller Fest. Mm. And um, I like going to Thriller Fest, except it's bloody hot in the summer in New York City. Uh, you know, yes, you stay in the air conditioning, but the second week in July, almost Oh, I've never me. been to Thriller Fest. You've not? Oh, it's tons of fun. Tons of fun. So um, it is probably, a, it's a great organization. I, I tell you what I think about cons as an outsider. I'm not a writer at all. I am a reader. And obviously I go as press or media presence. Mm. I love watching the interaction of authors from the most well-known to the up-and-coming. It is like, it's a collegial atmosphere. Authors are the most sharing individuals I have ever met. Oh, that's great. I, crime writers are, I know. I don't know if if yeah. if literary writers are as collegial as crime writers, but it's still well, a very the ro- warm, I know the romance. Community. Yeah, the romance community definitely is. Um, one of my former guests has said he makes a point of going to all the romance cons because he feels like he's nestled against his mother's breast again. Oh, he said, <laughs> the, the, oh that's the, rather he, sweet. Yeah, he says it's it's you. They just take you in and. You know, you've had this maternal experience that you go home with and you feel loved all over the place and it's a glow that stays. I would imagine that. Um, I I just returned from Sleuth Fest this past weekend and, of course, I was in the city for Love is Murder. I, I find authors to be the most um, incredibly sharing group of people I've ever met. And it's fascinating to watch them and how honest everybody is when they um, allow me to intrude on their lives for an hour. As you've done. You've been very generous with your time. Well, it was a pleasure to talk with you, Pam. Thank you so much for, for letting me so be part glad. of this. Oh, please, thank you for being here. I want to remind everybody that you can find out more about Sarah by going directly to her website. She has an appearance calendar there. You can find her on Facebook. Are you are you in Twitter at all, Sarah? I am, but I, I'm not a very skilled Twitter user, but I am on Twitter. Okay, but well, I'm regularly on Facebook, and I, I really enjoy Facebook. that interaction. Yes, I see you on Facebook quite a bit, and it's tons of fun. On Wednesday, I'll be talking to another thriller writer. He's a young guy who has a very, very quirky sense of humor. I love his books. His name is Nick Barish. He'll be on at nine o'clock because he's out in California. And on Friday, I'm taking to the Science Fiction Spotlight Studios, and I'm going to be talking to Blue Cole about his post-apocalyptic novel, uh, Sleeping Six. And then Monday, the terrifically talented, very well-known author, Clive Cussler, will be with me on the 9th. Um, on the 16th, Tim Dorsey. On the 23rd, Alan Russell. And the 30th, Yahoo! CJ Box. Cowboy Time. <laughs> Can't wait. Sarah Paresky, you're you're just incredible. I love your work dearly. I think you're a wonderful person. Well, and you're thank very you so generous. Much thank the, you so much. Thank you so much for the honor of being with me tonight. And and you know, stay warm in Chicago. And maybe, <laughs> we'll do. We'll do. Maybe I'll bump into you at one of those. Um, bump into you at one of those cons this year. Well, I hope. Make you. sure you come up and wave something like a red flag in my face and talk. To I me. shall do that. I shall do that. Thank you so much for being with me tonight, Sarah. Have a good evening. Thank you, Pam. Thanks a lot. Well, absolutely. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Um, what an honor to have Sarah Peretsky with me. I hope you enjoyed yourself as much as I did. Have a good evening. Enjoy a book. I'm Dad. See you next time. Mm-hmm.